Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we are launching into another show where we're taking your questions. Many of you have been engaging with our sister website, TimelessHealingInsights.org, or uh, many of you, if you've had trouble accessing that site, some browsers, you've got to put the www.TimelessHealingInsights.org. And you've been writing in questions to us, questions about natural lifestyle strategies. Some of you have gone through our free 30-day online program that uh, includes roughly six-minute short videos by me each day walking you through a comprehensive lifestyle program, especially for diabetes and high blood pressure. And you've had questions as you've gone through that program. So a lot of the questions we've got do relate to those two conditions, diabetes and high blood pressure, but we've got many other questions that have come in. To help us in asking the questions and also to bail me out if I get into trouble is uh, my wife, Dr. Sonia DeRose. She is also an MD. Her training is in family practice. She's uh, actively engaged in the practice of that discipline of medicine. Sonia, it's uh, great to have you with us in the studio today. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. So, Sonia, I know you've got a whole printout right in front of you. A lot of questions that have come in through the TimelessHealingInsights.org website. Why don't we uh, dive right into it for the folks who've been uh, waiting for their questions to be answered. Okay. The first question says this. I was diagnosed with high blood pressure and have made a decision not to take medication. Is your program a good replacement for medication? This is uh, one of the million-dollar questions, and it has one of my favorite answers. This was one of my favorite answers when I was teaching in college classrooms. I would love to ask my students questions where the answer was, it depends. So this particular questioner did not tell us what their blood pressure was. So let me give you an example. If your blood pressure is 250 over 120 and you're wondering, should you go on Dr. DeRose's lifestyle strategies for blood pressure I would say, well, yeah, go on those lifestyle strategies, but get on a blood pressure medication first. Actually go to the emergency room, help them get that blood pressure down because you're at imminent risk of having a stroke. Now, let's presume in this it depends scenario that the person who's asking the question maybe had a blood pressure of 140 over 95. They're 35. They're perfectly healthy. No risk factors for heart disease or stroke. And uh, everyone in their family lived to be 100. So it's a different scenario. What we're basically trying to ascertain when we're talking about do you do lifestyle alone initially, and, and this is what I do as a physician, and you probably do the same thing uh, as well, Sonia. You probably, like me, and you can tell me if I'm speaking out of line, when you see a patient, you're trying to evaluate because you believe in the, the power of lifestyle. You're trying to evaluate do I put this person on just a lifestyle program or do I give them a prescription? Is that something you struggle with? Definitely. And like you say, it depends on the blood pressure numbers 
and on the patient as well. Some people are willing and anxious to go on a lifestyle program, and you can see that they are willing to put in the effort it takes to do that. Others just would rather take a pill and uh, not put the effort in. But it is, as uh, Dr. Duros mentioned, vitally important that one's blood pressure not be left at these really high numbers while making lifestyle changes, because that gives you a great risk of having a heart attack or stroke. Yeah, and so the thing is, I mean, it's it's relative, of course. Uh, you know, I mentioned a you know figure in the the 140s over 80s, uh, which is higher than I'd like to see. In fact, I just saw a patient yesterday with kidney failure. Um, I get worried when I see numbers systolic blood pressures in the 140s when they've got serious kidney problems. So we're trying to get her numbers down, and we're basically doing a combination in different people. In her case, we did. Um, actually increase medication first, but we can always back off medication when the person implements more lifestyle strategies. So bottom line answer to this it depends answered question is work with your physician. Ask the physician, can I try lifestyle for a couple of months? They will be able to evaluate that in the light of your present concerns, your present condition, and if they give you the green light, then go for that. And yes, the program we put together in our book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control, which is also in the free videos that you find, our 30-day lifestyle program at TimelessHealingInsights.org. The other thing that is really important, as uh, Dr. Droz mentioned, is working with your physician while you are making lifestyle changes. Because even if they put you on a blood pressure medication, as you make those changes, your blood pressure is going to come down almost certainly. And so it's important to work with them so that your blood pressure doesn't go too low and they can decrease your medications as you are making these lifestyle changes that lower your blood pressure naturally. Yeah, good point, Sonia. And the other thing about what she's mentioning is typically when we're making medication changes in a patient, we are tapering medicines. We're not just stopping them abruptly. And that's another really important uh, point to keep in mind. So here's our next question. It seems when I eat a lot of plant-based foods, I have reflux and indigestion and feel bloated. Is there a reason to be concerned? Is this normal, and what can I take to relieve the burning when I eat? On a regular basis, almost daily, I eat broccoli, spinach, and enjoy squash. Is there a natural remedy, or should I take an over-the-counter medication? So, uh, you know, one of the things that we have talked about many times when we answer your questions is... Uh, it's an aphorism. It's a, an important concept that has been drilled into me as a clinician. And it goes simply like this. The first step in treatment is diagnosis. It's true when we see heartburn in most people, we're dealing with something that we call GERD, uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease. It's uh, often, in many of these people, it's not something serious. If you look down there with a scope, there's uh, there's some inflammation. It, many times it's not stirred up seriously. They don't have serious changes there. But there are people that have chronic heartburn that can have serious changes. They can have pre-malignant changes. You may have heard something called Barrett's esophagus. A person can even have cancerous changes in the esophagus. So, yes, the majority of people with heartburn, it's garden variety heartburn, even though we 
now attach that GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease label to it. And the question becomes, what can we do lifestyle-wise that can make a difference? We do have a whole handout on this. And while we're talking together, I will double-check and see that it's on one of our websites for you. And I'll give that out uh, for you folks on air if I can confirm that for you. But some of the, the practical strategies, one of them has to do with the volume of food that you eat. When you're eating plant-based foods, it's easier to eat a lot in volume because there's not as many calories. So you're, you know, you're not gaining weight. But um, those plant-based foods, they can fill your stomach up quite a bit. And one of the things that predisposes to uh, reflux is uh, distension. You know, filling the stomach more actually can put you at higher risk. So you know, there's some other things as well. Another thing that can often cause uh, problems for people is if they're consuming a lot of the cold crop foods, that's things like broccoli, ca cabbage, cauliflower, kale greens, collard greens, etc., those kind of things. If you're eating those raw, especially, a lot of people have trouble digesting them properly and they can cause more heartburn and indigestion. But many times, if they're cooked properly, people can eat them fine without those complications. So that may be one thing that the person is dealing with. So some of the other things that we recommend, one of them has to do with just what you do after you eat. And uh, after you eat, you don't want to uh, lie down. So we usually say at least three hours before lying down if you have heartburn. And we do recommend that people put uh, blocks up under the head of their bed. So that would be four to six inch blocks. A lot of people say, well, what if I just uh, use a bunch of pillows? That is not equivalent because when you use the pillows or the wedge, that uh, puts actually a kink in your abdomen because it's raising up your shoulders but not your legs. And uh, that actually puts uh, some increased forces in the abdomen that actually can make reflux more likely. So putting the bed at an angle, so if you either have a hospital bed or putting those blocks up under the bed, those are, um, are important strategies. The other thing is we recommend not drinking anything with the meal because uh, adding fluid to the mix slows gastric emptying. In other words, the stomach will not empty as quickly, and uh, that can uh, increase problems with reflux. A couple of other pointers that can be helpful. One is to chew our food thoroughly and eat slowly, as this helps us not to overeat, and also to not eat our biggest meal in the evening. So if you finish eating all food several hours, five or six hours or more before you go to bed or lie down, this can help also with the reflux symptoms. Let's talk about a few other do's and don'ts when it comes to reflux. One thing not to do, commonly seen, in fact, I was dealing with a patient with uh, who was doing this the other day, and that is uh, do not take Tums or calcium-containing antacids. It is true if you really don't have a serious problem, taking something like that may give you some relief. But if you have something more serious or more persistent, calcium, yes, will buffer the acid, but it's also what we call an acid secretagogue. That means after taking a calcium-containing antacid, it will actually stimulate the stomach to produce more acid an hour or two later. And so it just ends up setting uh, often the stage for a vicious cycle. So we recommend not using calcium-containing antacids. 
Second thing, if you're looking for natural options, things that can help ease inflammation in the gut, the three natural remedies that uh, Sonia and I have used most often in our patient populations, one uh, that I was actually talking with a patient about the other day is simply uh, aloe vera. And uh, you'll want to use a filtered aloe vera if you tend to have normal stools or loose stools because whole aloe vera has a laxative component in it. If you're constipated, that may be an asset to you. But if not, you'll want to use the filtered aloe vera. And then um, something else you want to keep in mind as far as other natural strategies, slippery elm bark. This is a, a natural herb. This has uh, healing properties for the intestinal lining. And then something I learned about from a, uh, a natural-minded uh, physiologist years ago was a research that went back many decades that looked at healing properties in cabbage. So we had talked about this family of foods, you know, the, the cruciferous vegetables, sometimes how they can cause problems. But cabbage juice, fresh cabbage juice, actually has healing properties that helps to uh, heal the lining of the stomach and the uh, esophagus. So uh, these are just uh, some strategies that you may want to implement. Uh, bottom line, though, if something's persistent, get it checked out. Get that accurate diagnosis. And we do often that as physicians, my wife and I both, we don't do endoscopy, but I'm frequently referring people to specialists who look down there, make sure we're not dealing with something more serious so that we can have kind of that green light as far as uh, using the natural therapies or lifestyle therapies and we don't have to worry about something more serious. Here's our next question. I seem to be having a lot of memory issues. I am a diabetic on insulin two times a day and have been for 10 years. Does diabetes impact memory issues? Also, could you speak to diabetes and irritable bowel issues? That seems to be a common situation for me. So the question is about memory and the question I have for those of you tuning in, listening to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, how is your memory? Because we're actually going to pick that question up uh, in just a couple of minutes. We have to step away just briefly. We're taking your questions. If you've got questions that you want to have answered on a future edition of this show, the website to submit the questions, www.timelesshealinginsights.org. That's timeless healinginsights.org. We'll be back with that question and more with our answers. You're listening to the DeRoses here on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid. But there is hope. Reach out to someone. Connect with your friends. Stay in touch with your community. And know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. With me in the studio, my wife, Dr. Sonia DeRose. We're two uh, medical doctors, two MDs, who are answering your questions today. And uh, one loose end from our discussion about reflux that we had toward the end of the last segment. If you're just jumping on, I had mentioned a handout. We've looked, we've double-checked on our websites. That particular handout, even though it's available, is not currently on any of our websites. So if you have a special interest in that, please go through our Timeless Healing Insights .org website. You can just communicate with us there. And if you'd like the handout on reflux, we can get that for you. We're coming back now to the questions. Sonia, the last question that you had asked before we stepped away for the break had to do with diabetes, with mental health, and some other issues. Why don't you read it again for the benefit of all our listeners as well as for your husband? Here's the question. I seem to be having a lot of memory issues. I am a diabetic on insulin two times a day and have been for 10 years. Does diabetes impact memory issue? Also, could you speak to diabetes and irritable bowel issues? That seems to be a common situation for me. Okay, so first let's tackle the memory. So bottom line is your brain is very dependent on blood sugar. So both hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, and high blood sugars are damaging to the brain short-term and or long-term and the research tends to suggest both. So if you've had a lot of hypoglycemic episodes, that can take a toll on the brain over time. Same with the high blood sugars. So high blood sugar has cumulative uh, damage that it's doing to the body uh, globally, really, and especially on the tiny blood vessels. We usually see those symptoms showing up with kidney problems, eye problems, nerve problems, but the brain is not immune to it as well. So the goal with diabetes, try to keep the blood sugars as stable as possible. And uh, the free 30-day program that we have 
at TimelessHealingInsights.org. That program is designed to try to help you improve your diabetic control. So that's a, that's an important piece of the puzzle. You then talked about irritable bowel syndrome, and probably the first connection I'll mention between diabetes and irritable bowel, these are extremely common conditions. So even if they were totally unrelated, they would um, they would occur frequently in um, in people just because they're both common situations. It's just like saying, is there a relationship between blue eyes and brown hair? Sure, you may say there's certain races of people that tend to have that characteristic, but um, those two features, common features, and they often occur concomitantly. But Sonia, there are other things that you know we were talking about during the break that would make a connection between the gut and uh, diabetes a little bit tighter. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. Diabetes can also damage the nerves around the gut, and that can lead to uh, symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, such as diarrhea, constipation, excess gas, stomach pain, etc. So some of you, if you have diabetes or have been around people with diabetes, you'll hear about conditions like gastroparesis, uh, where the stomach is not emptying properly going along with diabetes. Other people may have a dumping syndrome where the they, they can't uh, hold on to the food normally and that food is going through the uh, gut structures very rapidly. Both of these can be related to damage to the nerves. And we mentioned just a moment ago about diabetic complications. They affect the nerves. A lot of people, when they hear diabetic neuropathy, they think, oh, yeah, that's the numbness in my feet. Well, you can have, that, that's very common, that's uh, the technical term is a distal symmetric polyneuropathy. I know it's a mouthful, but it basically means both sides of your body uh, end up with these uh, nerve-related changes, and they often start with numbness, tingling, other sensations in your toes, and work your way up your feet. But you can also get what we call autonomic diabetic neuropathy. So the autonomic nervous system is the nervous system that is unconscious to you, the autonomic nervous system, for example, controls digestion. So if you have autonomic diabetic neuropathy, it can affect everything from your postural reflexes. You can get lightheaded. You can be passing out. You can have problems with digestion that can mimic irritable bowel syndrome or can worsen irritable bowel syndrome if that was a pre-existing condition you had. Bottom line question, uh, uh, bottom line answer to this question is simple. If you're diagnosed with diabetes, take it seriously. Try to control things. Reverse it if possible. We're using that term. Many more practitioners are using the term reversal. And the kind of lifestyle that we're uh, putting forth on our websites is one that's designed to try to help you accomplish that. Okay, here's our next question. I am 44 years old and have high cholesterol. I exercise daily and am a vegetarian. I do eat dairy but do not eat any meat. Is it the dairy that's causing my cholesterol issue? To all you folks out there who are eating meat and uh, eating cheese, drinking milk, having milkshakes, having your daily cheesecake, and have great cholesterol numbers, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, no, those things are not a problem. Here's the problem with these, uh, what we call N of 1 studies. Uh, N is the number of people in a study. And most of us, if we're just thinking about ourselves, the N, the number of people in the study, is just me. So uh, that's one. Well, here's the issue with that. All of us have different genetics, different uh, early lifestyle history, things that were going on in the womb when you were uh, in your mother's incubator, if you will, uh, can affect your metabolism later in life. So there's both genetics and environment, not just intrauterine factors, but early life factors. And 
later in life factors. So everybody handles challenges differently. What we do know, if you look at large population studies, is diet makes a huge difference. Decades ago, researchers like Ansel Keys, a very famous researcher, uh, Dr. Hegstead, another very famous researcher, these some of the pioneers in diet and cholesterol research, they basically found they could predict cholesterol levels in groups of people, not any individual because of these different individual variations, but if you took a group of people and they looked at how they ate, they could predict what their cholesterols are. And uh, it was largely driven by things like cholesterol in the diet, which only occurs in animal foods, and things like saturated fat, uh, in particular, raising the cholesterol. Saturated fat is the primary fat found in animal products. So when someone talks about leaving meat out of their diet, they're talking about a diet that is going to tend to lower their cholesterol. What Keyes and Hegstad didn't look at was other factors that we now know as the decades have played out, other nutritional factors that affect cholesterol. Things like fiber. Fiber, especially soluble fiber, has cholesterol-lowering properties. Sonia, why don't you um, help uh, us out and let the folks uh, know what soluble fiber is and how often you recommend it. Soluble fiber is found in uh, many plant foods, uh, things like oatmeal, apples, Lots of plant foods have this in them, and it does help, as Dr. Duros mentioned, to lower your cholesterol by cleaning it out of your gut. Yeah, so for those of you who want a little bit more precise scientific definition, Sonia is great. We, we both work on trying to break things down and make it simple for lay people, but sometimes we oversimplify it. So if that sounds a little too simple, cleaning out of the gut, the way the soluble fiber works, it actually binds to something called bile acids. These are the things that your liver makes out of uh, cholesterol. Uh, used to make bile, which then helps you digest fat. Well, those bile acids can be reabsorbed in the intestine, and uh, if they're reabsorbed, then, um, well, you're not going to need to take cholesterol to make more of them. But the way the fiber, quote, cleans out the gut is it binds up with those bile acids, takes them out of the gut, out of your body, so your body has to use more cholesterol to make more bile, thus lowering the cholesterol. Some of the early cholesterol-lowering drugs actually worked this way. They were what we call bile acid sequestrants. That means they gobbled up, they grabbed those uh, bile acids and got them to go out through your colon. Some of those drugs are even still used today for cholesterol-lowering, not commonly, but they're, they're still available. So we mention all that to say several things. One of the things in the equation, uh, the question about dairy... Dairy actually has cholesterol-raising properties. One of the reasons has to do with its protein composition. So, again, looking at historical research on cholesterol and diet, researchers fairly early on found that different types of proteins had different effects on cholesterol. So take all the saturated fat out of the equation. Take all the cholesterol out of the equation. And if you give someone these uh, animal proteins they tend to raise cholesterol. One of the worst cholesterol-raising proteins is something called casein, which is the protein found in milk. So here's the point. Many people can have good cholesterol and can still use some dairy, but other people, if they're especially susceptible to the cholesterol-raising effects of diet, what we find is uh, they're going to have the best results if they leave out all of the animal products, including the dairy. So if you want to say what's the optimal lifestyle when it comes to cholesterol lowering, it is that you've heard about it on this show, that whole foods, plant-based diet. 
I know for some people, their eyes glaze over when they hear that. We're just talking about eating as many plant foods as you can in their natural state. So that means we're not talking about things like potato chips and uh, uh, French fries, okay? Uh, yes, those are made from potatoes, but the baked potato or the whole potatoes are going to be a whole lot better when it comes to your cholesterol as well as other health outcomes. Sonia, I know our um, time is slipping away in this segment, and uh, we're going to be coming back with more questions. Do you have more than just a few questions uh, on hand? Yes, we have plenty more questions to go through. So the bottom line is we're not going to run out of questions. So if you're enjoying the program, please uh, stay tuned. If you're not enjoying it, it's because we don't have your questions. You can send your questions into us through the TimelessHealingInsights.org website. That's also the place where you can access our free program and our free weekly TV show, 30-minute program, www.TimelessHealingInsights.org. Put your questions in there. We'll take them up in a future program. This is a pre-recorded show, but we'll be coming back to more of your questions right after these important announcements. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's samhsa.gov support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. 
Welcome back to our second half of today's edition of the broadcast. Dr. David DeRose with Dr. Sonia DeRose. We are taking your questions. Questions come through our website, a sister website of the program, TimelessHealingInsights.org. Depending on your browser, you may need to use that www in front of it. So www.TimelessHealingInsights.org. You can find uh, not only links to this radio show, but also to a half-hour television show that we're producing called Timeless Healing Insights. And most important, relative to what we're talking about today, our free 30-day lifestyle program. So that program is something that's helping you to connect with natural strategies to especially address conditions like diabetes and high blood pressure. But it's a great uh, way to get a jump start on your lifestyle. Take one month out and focus on having better health. With that background, we've got more questions coming up, and we're going to turn it over to Dr. Sonia because she's got some of your questions right in front of her. Okay, our next question is this. My blood pressure medication gives me a red rash on my hands and feet. If I stop taking it, it goes away. When I resume, it takes about three days to return. My primary doctor doesn't seem overly concerned with the rash. Is this an issue? And do I need a new doctor? Well, we're not going to uh, we're not going to have you fire your doctor just yet, because as we've been talking, even in this show, the first step in treatment is diagnosis. Uh, here's why I'm saying this: blood pressure medications work in different ways. Some of the blood pressure medications, one of the ways they work is by dilating or opening up blood vessels, and this can cause changes can cause uh, more blood flow, perhaps in some people even more redness in uh, the extremities. One of the drugs that does have this effect of affecting blood vessels, especially in the extremities, is a blood pressure medication called amlodipine. Amlodipine came out originally under the brand name of Norvask. So here's the thing. You know, normally you say rash to a doctor, we think something allergic. And yes, if it's an allergy, we don't want to keep taking a medicine. But there can be other things that may change some changes in pigment, some swelling, some other things. And it's always a tough call to know what the best medication is to use. Because after all, we're talking in this program and in our 30-day lifestyle program, our free program online, We're trying to help people decrease their dependence on medications. So, yes, we're trying to decrease the number of drugs that you take. We're trying to help you do that in conjunction with your physician, with your prescribing practitioner, if you prefer. And I'm just saying, in a situation like this where we get a question through the Internet, I'm always a little reluctant to just jump on board and say, oh, rash, stop the medicine, because obviously... The, the doctor who assessed you didn't feel it was something allergic. Now, having said all that, I will be the first one to admit every practitioner that I know of is human. We can overlook things. Things can be more significant than we give credence to, or we can think something is a bigger problem than it really is. So, yes, uh, I'm not going to say I, every decision I've ever made is perfect. In fact, I will go further than that and say I've overlooked plenty of things in my life. That's why we have people have return visits, okay, because we want to follow up and say, oh, wow, this isn't working. You know, we got to change course. This is not responding the way I expected. 
So bottom line with this, we don't want anyone to change their medications abruptly. That can be potentially dangerous, uh, can't even be life-threatening in certain circumstances. But if you have concerns about a medication, then it is appropriate to discuss it with your provider. And if everything else seems to be fine and the doctor explains to you it's dilating the blood vessels, making your hands a little more red, your feet a little bit more red, and they don't think it's a rash, they don't think it's allergic, and that's convincing to you, you're not having problems with swelling that are bothering you, things of that nature, then it may be better than some other options with more serious, potentially serious side effects. That being said, maybe all the more reason for you to use as many natural remedies, lifestyle changes as possible to lower your blood pressure naturally, and maybe you will be able to get off blood pressure medication completely. Great point. That's what our goal is for as many people as possible, and we do see a lot of people getting off medicines for both diabetes and high blood pressure, which are the two conditions that we specifically focus on in the 30-day program. Okay, here's our next question. My primary care doctor says I should eat meat as I need the protein to maintain healthy muscles and nutrients. You advocate a plant-based diet. Is a meat-based diet mandatory for healthy body mass and heart muscle? Well, the answer to the second part of the question, is meat necessary uh, or mandatory for healthy body mass and heart muscle, uh, that answer is a resounding no. And uh, we've known that for, for literally decades. Now, this is not to um, depreciate in any way what your primary care doctor is saying about you because we don't know you. Sonia and I have uh, worked in many places in the world including places in the world where they can't get adequate plant protein. And I'm thinking of some rural areas we've been in in developing countries. Um, the best thing a person may be able to do as far as getting their protein needs satisfied is that little chicken that they have that's laying eggs for the family. Now, some of you might be shocked that I'm saying this, but we're very uh, pragmatic practitioners and uh, I'm thinking of a situation just like that when we were in West Africa some years ago. We didn't tell people they all had to be vegans because some of these people, uh, they were in dire straits uh, at that time and just, uh, you know, barely maybe getting by with their caloric needs and their protein needs. So here's my point. Um, I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know whether you have food allergies. I don't know whether there's other things that are limiting your diet. So we never want to say that specific advice given to any individual is necessarily wrong. We're not able to uh, give you individual medical advice when we're doing general question and answer sessions on air. But I will say this. For many years, um, we in the medical profession, myself included, I grew up in this environment as well. You know, the mindset was, yes, you had to have protein. It had to be animal protein. You had to have this right mix of amino acids that were like the amino acids in your own muscle. That's what you had to have. That was a, a dogma that was prevalent even when I was in my medical training, doing my internal medicine residency. But even back then, as uh, the research was coming out, and there was research well before uh, that time, just if you're trying to date me based on some of the research, but we've known now for a long time that these protein sources that look just like or very similar to or the, quote, high-quality protein, just like in your body, there's some downsides to this. It was probably a couple decades ago that a researcher at uh, 
Kaiser Permanente, one of the facilities uh, there out in California, Dr. Provancha was his name, Steve Provancha, I believe. He looked at the literature and said, you know, when we eat all these animal products, those amino acids flood into our bloodstream and our body thinks that our own tissue is breaking down because the amino acid balance is so similar to human tissue. And what Provancha put forth in a published study was that this is uh, actually detrimental. Your body goes into inflammatory responses. It's producing stress hormones and things as a response. So what we know about these animal products is not only like we mentioned earlier in the show, they tend to raise cholesterol. They tend to raise inflammatory compounds in the body. They tend to be hard on the kidneys. Uh, They tend to raise insulin resistance. The saturated fat uh, is incorporated into your cell membranes. And when the cell membranes are stiffer, insulin does not work as well. So this is one of the root causes of diabetes. It also can impact the nerve membranes, so your nerve cells. And when that happens, the neurotransmitters don't seem to work as well. So you're seeing research coming out with these omega-3 fats and other of these polyunsaturated plant fats. I say omega-3 fats are plant fats because that's where they are made, even though fish will concentrate these fats some uh, certain cold water fish especially. But the omega-3 fats are a plant fat. That's where they come from in nature. They make the membranes more fluid, and uh, this seems to help insulin work better as well as neurotransmitters. Bottom line, unless there's a specific reason, environmental, socioeconomic, health, we don't find that we need to prescribe anyone meat in America today. I completely concur with that. Also, It's uh, well known that we do not need to eat all the different uh, amino acids at the same meal. Uh, But if you're getting a balance of different amino acids from various plant sources throughout the day, we can have all the uh, building blocks we need to make healthy muscle, healthy body tissue, and that a vegetarian or vegan diet is very adequate for these things and actually induces better health. And I know Sonia and I have been throwing out this amino acid term. She defined it a little bit, perhaps better than I did. So amino acids are the building blocks uh, to proteins. So if you want to think of the proteins in your body that make up things like muscle and and other tissue, largely protein-based tissues, you know, heart muscle, other muscle uh, structures, these proteins also involved in enzymes and other structural ways in the body They're made up of chains of amino acids. So think in terms of a train with multiple cars. The amino acids are the cars. The protein is the train. So you have to have the right amino acids in the right amounts to make the trains that your body needs, the various proteins that are essential for life. Okay, our next question. What is the importance of movement to prevent diabetes? Which diabetes is most dangerous? And are there different kinds of diabetes and related disease? Well, let's talk about movement. Movement is powerful. So activity is one of the pillars, one of the cornerstones of optimal blood sugar control. Researchers uh, years ago looked at people with prediabetes, and they found that movement, that activity, physical exercise, as well as just modest weight loss could actually stave off the development of diabetes. So we recommend that everyone in our programs is doing some kind of activity on a daily basis. That doesn't mean you've got to go out to the gym and work out every day, but uh, do some physical activity. 
Exercise actually has an insulin-like effect. It has uh, stress management effects, and stress tends to raise blood pressure and blood sugar. So if you can modify, modulate the stress, that is going to be beneficial as well. So uh, exercise, far-reaching benefits. When it comes to the types of diabetes, historically we speak about type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Type 1 we used to call childhood onset or juvenile diabetes. This is the uh, diabetes that uh, is basically the result of pancreatic failure. Type 2 diabetes is the lion's share of diabetes that we see in America. Probably 90 to 95% of the diabetes we see is type 2. We used to call it adult onset, but we see it in many uh, young people as well, so we use the term type 2. That is due uh, largely to lifestyle and other factors that worsen insulin resistance. One of the things that can help you with that whole process is physical activity. Well, Sonia, I know we've got more questions. We do have a final segment coming up in today's show. We're going to step away briefly just one more time. We'll come back with our final segment with more of your questions. I know it's too late right now in this pre-recorded show to get your questions added, but this is uh, the fifth or sixth show of this nature that we've done over the last year or two. If you want your questions included, the best place to go, www.timelesshealinginsights.org timelesshealinginsights.org We'll be back with your final set of questions after these important announcements. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My wife, Dr. Sonia DeRose, also an MD, has been helping not only by asking the questions, reading your questions, but also by uh, giving some additional insights. So we've got a final segment here tackling things that you've sent to us through our website, TimelessHealingInsights.org. If you're just joining us, that is a site where we feature a free 30-day lifestyle program. Roughly six minutes a day, I give you different pointers, different challenges to try to help you optimize your health. It's a program especially designed for diabetes and high blood pressure, but we've had people using it for a variety of reasons. In fact, Sonia, someone not long ago said they went through the program a second time, and both uh, she and her husband lost a fair amount of weight going through the program. So that's another benefit that we've been hearing as folks do that 30-day lifestyle program free online. Okay, here's our next question. My husband suffered a mini ischemic stroke due to blockage of a small vessel deep within the left side of the brain when he stopped taking diabetic and blood pressure medicine. He stopped because he had horrible side effects from the medicine. Now he is on both long- and short-term insulin and Valsartan, a cousin to Losartan that causes the worst side effects. He is now having the side effects again, which is interfering with his stroke recovery. He's working one half day, Monday to Friday. We love your 30-day program and would like to add CoQ10, but we are afraid it may lower his blood pressure so far that it impairs blood flow through that vessel. How can we safely proceed? Yes, there's a lot to unpack in that question, a lot of take-home messages. This is a common scenario, and a lot of people have side effects from medications. When we wrote our book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control, Dr. Greg Steinke nurse practitioner Trudy Lee and myself, we looked at the research on what we call adherence or compliance with prescriptions for blood pressure. It's shocking, actually. This individual mentioned Valsartan and Losartan. These are so-called angiotensin receptor blockers or ARBs. These drugs, believe it or not, are among the best tolerated blood pressure medicines. And it's true, just what this individual wrote, uh, about one-third of people within a year of being on those medications, have side effects so bad they have to stop them. And those are the best drugs. I mean, best tolerated, okay? So what I'm simply saying is a lot of people go down this scenario. They're put on medicine for either diabetes or high blood pressure. They have problems with the medications, and then they stop them. What we've been talking about on this show, in part, are the dangers of high blood pressure. And when you stop a medicine abruptly, depending on what that drug is, it can cause something called rebound hypertension. There are certain drugs that if you stop them, your blood pressure can go up higher than it ever was prior to being on the drug. That's not real common, but can happen. There are certain blood pressure medications that have stopped abruptly have been uh, known to trigger heart attacks. You mentioned uh, here in your question the stroke that occurred. So we don't take stopping medications lightly. And in fact, we never recommend anyone stop a medicine for blood pressure or diabetes on their own. We say work with the provider. So it seems that that message has come through loud and clear to you. So you're asking about lifestyle things, other non-drug therapies like the CoQ10. So Coenzyme Q10 we do feature in our free video series as well as in our book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. And uh, the reason we feature it is because there's some pretty impressive data that this compound can help lower blood pressure. The question is right on point, though, because individuals who have what we call cerebrovascular disease, blockage in blood vessels, there are concerns with lowering their blood pressure too much. 
And so really you want to have someone who's an ally working with you in the process. So uh, there are practitioners that are involved in more natural therapies. In fact, Sonia, I know you've got a question coming up about that. And maybe we're going to add a second question to this discussion because I think it actually is relevant at this point. So go ahead, uh, Dr. Sonia. Here is that question. I would love to hear your thoughts on the growing and most welcome, in my opinion, shift in Western medicine to so-called functional medicine. I am part of a cohort with hundreds of other primary practitioners to the ongoing email education from the Institute for Functional Medicine. So what's happening right now, whether you're talking about a discipline that's been called functional medicine, whether you're talking about another newer group called the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, or whether you're talking about people that have worked under the banner of complementary and alternative medicine, what I would like to say, and I know if you're a provider in any one of these disciplines, you're not going to like me putting you all together, but what I want to say is that all of these disciplines, all of these movements are illustrating something that's very positive, and that is moving more to looking at physiology, how do we impact things, usually with natural therapies, non-drug therapies for addressing health issues. And the reason I wanted you to ask that question then, Sonia, I think it's critical that if you're interested in trying to get off of medications and you don't have a provider that's willing to work with you to do that, then find someone who is. And my point for mentioning, whether it's functional medicine, lifestyle medicine, natural medicine, there are naturopathic physicians. Some of them are very well-trained in accredited programs, and I've worked with some of them. Very impressed. There are other people with ND degrees who did not go to an accredited school and may not have a very solid training. And no matter where someone trained, there's people who aren't very balanced in their approach, regardless of how good a school they went to and how good a training they had. I tell you all that to simply say this. A lot more options out there, wherever you're at, wherever you're listening today, we do not offer through any of our websites individual health counseling, but find someone who does work with them. And when it comes to, can I use coenzyme Q10 as part of my blood pressure lowering regimen? Would this be detrimental with my history of stroke? Have someone individualize that to you in person. Sonia, I know there's some more questions and our time is rapidly uh, slipping away. Okay, so here's our next question. I was diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea last year around September 2021 and suffer from it constantly. I am not overweight, a smoker, or a drinker. I am at a healthy weight. I exercise six days a week. I use a CPAP but still suffer from inability to breathe at times. I eat mostly plant-based foods and very little bacon, adhere to the New Start principle, and take supplements like NAC and B12. Is there anything that you can think of as a form of food, drink, sleep position, or the things that I can do to prevent my throat from closing up at night? So obstructive sleep apnea is a very common problem. And uh, among the things that go along with sleep apnea is high blood pressure. It's one of the things that we cover in our blood pressure book. So as far as this uh, particular individual, talking about non-drug, non-surgical approaches, maybe I shouldn't limit it that way. First of all, let me mention this. The standard treatment is CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure. If you're using one of these CPAP machines today, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you tried one 10 years ago and you didn't tolerate it, don't cross it off your list. There's newer delivery devices, newer types of masks, nasal pillows, different ways to get that uh, positive airway pressure into the airways. What that does is it keeps the airways open at night. This individual is still having problems despite that. 
So there's other devices. There's something called BiPAP, things that vary the pressure more. Those can be explored. And then there are surgical strategies too. I don't want to just cross that off the list because I have seen patients who have had surgeries to alter some of the structures in the upper airway, and sometimes that can address the problem. There are also oral devices. So these are non-drug, non-surgical devices. You may be working with a dentist or an ear, nose, and throat specialist or a sleep medicine specialist to have a special device uh, that you would put in the mouth, an airway appliance that can kind of help keep the airway open. Sometimes it has to do with keeping the tongue from falling backwards, if you will. And uh, you can definitely experiment with different sleep positions. But again, because everyone's situation is different, we can't make generalizations. But these are all very fruitful areas to explore. Sonia, I think we've got at least uh, one or two more questions. Let's see what we can squeeze in before uh, our time runs out. Okay. So here are two questions that I'm going to put together because they're very much related. The first one says, I'm a 57-year-old woman and have thyroid issues related to menopause. It seems like my health has started to decline once menopause started. Am I at greater risk for diabetes and blood pressure issues because of menopause? Are heart issues a concern, and should I have them checked more frequently? I don't feel as though I have symptoms, but I do know I am more fatigued and have less energy these days. And then the other question is this. Is high blood pressure a normal issue while going through menopause? There's a lot in both of these questions, but let's try to make things as simple as we can. Just give you a few bullet points, uh, and this is not an exhaustive answer in view of our time. So one thing that does, of course, happen with menopause is women stop their monthly loss of blood. And there's some very interesting research linking higher hemoglobin levels to a greater risk of heart disease, higher blood pressure. In fact, uh, research that we cite in both of my recent books, The 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure and The Methuselah Factor, is that regular blood donation can be something uh, that can help actually lower blood pressure. In fact, this was featured in a full-length show on American Indian Alaska Native Living some time ago. So there are definitely things that change physiologically. Aging in general increases our likelihood of having high blood pressure and diabetes. So yes, with menopause, changes because of the condition also changes as we get older. And definitely you want to be more proactive with your health. Keep on top of things. Make sure you're working with a healthcare provider. Do the routine screening. Check your uh, blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugar markers. All of this is extremely important. The other thing to remember is that menopause or not, everyone has a higher risk of developing high blood pressure as we get older. So it's even more important to follow these lifestyle principles that can help to lower our blood pressure naturally. Well, our time has slipped away from us again. Dr. Sonia, thank you for joining us in the studio today. And thank you, each of you, for joining us on today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.